Before I start the show, I'd like to thank my new patron, Beth. She's my new stone dog, and you're the best, Beth. Thank you very, very much, and I appreciate you. If you saw me at JordanCon and our interactions were excruciatingly socially awkward, I'm sorry. Being in public with people was harder than I expected. I should have taken the Ativan. I'm hoping that next year will be easier, and if not, I'll take the Ativan. Either way, I assure you I was happy to see and or talk to you, even if it looked like I wanted to burst into tears and or run away. My social skills are a bit rusty right now, so hopefully that will improve in the future. Anyway, with that said, on to the episode. Stone won't fall until the podcast of the dragon comes to your device. Hey everybody, my name is Morgan. Can you tell I'm phasing out the Grey Warder on Twitter and Discord? Welcome to the 34th episode of Podcast of the Dragon. Why don't people like Elaine? She goes out of her way to be nice to everyone and tips more than 20%. Maybe you missed it because it annoys you when she raises her chin. Oh well. In this episode, I'm going to sing her praises, discuss her relationship with Nynaeve, and talk about a trip to Tanchico. Of the four distinct storylines that make up the Shadow Rising, Elaine and Nynaeve's trip to Tanchico is probably my favorite. The other three plots have fairly immediate consequences. We see the after-effects of the coup playing out right away moving into the next book, and the same goes for Rand's journey into the Aegeal Waste. And the aftermath of Perrin's story is pretty linear as well. We don't see him in Book 5, but after that, Lord Perrin with his Two Rivers crew is pretty relevant. In contrast, Elaine and Nynaeve's Tanchico trip has a very slow burn with late and multiple payouts. At first glance, this plot could be dismissed as a convenient narrative holding pattern for these two characters, and it was especially easy to make that mistake early on, waiting for books to come out because the real setup in this plot doesn't even start to come to fruition until Book 9 in Iwudar, with the return of Bale Doman and the Shanchen characters that we get reacquainted with here. And when it comes to the Domination Band, they don't really start to give dividends until Book 11, and more impactfully until Book 12, when Semiraj snaps it on Rand's neck, and we get the last that could be done. Traveling to an exotic port seeking an unknown object that is dangerous to Ran kind of comes across as a very random task that these two women undertake, and it definitely did for me, reading this series over and over, starting with the first four books. But we come to see as the story progresses and as we get into the later books that the search for the Domination Band isn't just a contrived artifact hunt that RJ came up with to give Elaine and Nynaeve something to do. Rather, it's a necessary step to bring us to a critical turning point in the story because it takes having the Domination Band put on Rand and what Samaraj makes Rand do with it, choking the life out of the woman that he loves, to push him past the point of no return. It puts him mentally in a place where the world would be better off without the dragon. When it comes to the Domination Band, it doesn't really matter where it is geographically in Randland. But Archie puts it in Tarabon, in Tanchico, a place that is about as far from Tarvalin as you can get and remain west of the Dragon Wall. It's relatively close to Saladar and Altara, so that Elaine and Nynaeve can get there easily enough after they do their Book 4 mission, 
and continue their arcs once they learn about the split in the tower. The Domination Band is placed in a situation where, with Shanshin scouts and the remnants of the Forerunners lurking about, it is perfectly logical that it might fall into the wrong hands. And I have to wonder if Jordan, who wrote scenes and connected lines but didn't necessarily know how he was going to get from point A to point L to point Z, planned from the very beginning for the girls to snake the Domination Band out from under the Black Aja's nose and then give it to Bale Doman to dump it into the ocean, only he's going to get boarded and lose it to the High Lady Surath, and eventually, much further on in the series, Samaraj will put it on Ran. He must have planned it, because why else, in the eye of the world, as Rand and Matt and Tom are on Bale's ship going down the RNL, does Bale Doman tell Rand about the Panarch's palace? They've just sailed past the Silver Tower, the Tower of Genjai, and Doman has said to Rand, Yo, why are you thinking about home? You're going to get the hook in you, and you're going to want to see everything out in the world, because it's awesome. And he tells Rand, In Tanchico, that be a port on the Arth Ocean. Part of the Panarch's palace were built in the Age of Legends, so it be said. There be a wall there with a frieze showing animals no man living has ever seen. Any child can draw an animal nobody's ever seen, Rand said, and the captain chuckled. Aye, lad, so they can, but can a child make the bones of those animals? In Tanchico they have them, all fastened together like the animal was. They stand in a part of the Panarch's palace where any can enter and see. Flight Down the RNL is Chapter 24 of Eye of the World. At this point of the story, RJ has only told us about a handful of places, most of them in Andor, and a couple of mentions of the Borderlands, we've heard of Tyr, Gildan, Tarvalin, and that's about it. But RJ drops the name of Tanchico in this dialogue and mentions the Panarch's palace, not just once, but twice. And that had to have been purposeful. He wanted us to know about it ahead of time. So RJ must have already been drawing the mental lines in Book 1 from Rand on a ship floating down the RNL to Rand with a collar around his neck in the process of strangling the woman that he loves and reaching out to the only thing that could stop it. And that's honestly pretty impressive. And you know, there's tons and tons of foreshadowing of all different kinds of things that he lays out throughout the book series, but there's something to learning about the Panarch's Palace and Museum of Wonders in Book 1, and then lo and behold, they have to go there in Book 4, but for something that's not going to pay out until Book 11 or Book 12? That's intense. That's awesome. And I really appreciate that about Jordan, and I appreciate that about this plotline. The girls choose to go to Tanchico to continue their mission of hunting the Black Aja. They chase 13 of them to Tyr and only capture two, so 11 have escaped, and they have spent their 20 days in the Stone of Tyr interrogating Joya Bayir and Amiko Nagoyan, who give two very different stories regarding the future plans of the Black Aja. Joya details a plot to rescue Mazram Taim and how they're going to break him out and then have him declare himself to be Randal Thor, the Dragon Reborn, commit all sorts of atrocities which Rand will then be blamed for, which is... Not an implausible plot, it's fairly realistic for a mwahaha type plan, and we know it is probably not true at all because of the oaths that black sisters are forced to swear to not betray anything until the hour of their deaths. And so Joya probably totally made that up. Amiko Nagoyan, who was stilled by Egwene when she was captured and is no longer bound to any of her oaths, has a story that she overheard Leandrin mentioning to Tamila Kinderode about Tanchico and that there is something there dangerous to Rand, something that will bind him with his own filthy ability. Nynaeve, Elaine, and Egwene feel no real certainty that the Black Aja is there. In fact, the lack of certainty about it is what makes Egwene feel comfortable enough to split away from her two friends and go to the Aiel Waste for training, Egwene goes into the world of dreams and explores around Tanchico to try to find any kind of clue that the Black Aja might be there, and she ends up running into Amis and learning about Wise One Dreamwalkers. Nynaeve and Elaine wake her up, and Egwene is frustrated by the fact that nothing she saw told her whether the Black Aja is there. Amis said that there was evil in the city, worse than men could make, but there was no way to know whether that was the Black Aja or something else. And so Egwene's like, I have to go to her. I have to go to the Waste for training. It says, Egwene's look, half defiant, half anxious, darted between Elaine and Nynaeve. If I was certain they were in Tanchico, I wouldn't let you go alone. 
if you decide to, but with a meese to help me, maybe I can find out where they are. Maybe I can... That is just it. I do not even know what I'll be able to do, only that I am certain it will be far more than I can now. It isn't as if I will be abandoning you. You can take the ring with you. You know the stone well enough to come back here and tell Iran Riyadh. I can come to you and Tanchico. Whatever I learn from Amis, I can teach you. Please say you understand. I can learn so much from Amis, and then I can use it to help you. It will be as if all three of us had been trained by her. A dreamwalker. A woman who knows. Leandrin and the rest of them will be like children. They won't know a quarter of what we do. She chewed her lip, one pensive bite. You don't believe I am running out on you, do you? If you do, I won't go. Of course you must go, Elaine told her. I will miss you, but no one promised us we could stay together until this was done. But the two of you... Going alone, I should go with you. If they really are in Tanchico, I should be with you. Nonsense, Nynaeve said briskly. Training is what you need. That will do us far more good in the long run than your company to Tanchico. It isn't even as if we know any of them are in Tanchico. If they are, Elaine and I will do very well together. But we could arrive and find that this evil is no more than the war, after all. So... RJ gives them so much uncertainty with his running uncertainty struggle choice and change theme that Egwene makes the choice to further her education and split from her friends. And Elaine and Nynaeve choose a path that is partly driven by duty because they have been given this task by the Omerlin Seat to hunt the Black Aja, and they only caught two of the thirteen. But I think it is also largely driven by Nynaeve's desire to not give up autonomy, so any excuse to keep searching is a good one, and considering the stakes with something potentially dangerous to Rand, what choice is there? So RJ has them slip into a holding pattern, and at the same time, has them do arguably one of the most important and plot-centric tasks, which is to protect the dragon from something that will come back and bite him in the ass later on, cause terrible suffering to Rand and others, and bring him to his lowest place so that he can have his epiphany. And RJ gives the majority of this adventure to us from Elaine's point of view, which makes it doubly fun and kind of exotic, since she is experiencing freedoms that she never expected to be able to experience. And so he uses her to do the bulk of the world building, and lets us get to know her from within at the same time. This is the first book where we're getting Elaine POVs, and she gives us most of the story of the journey to Tanchico in this kind of exciting travelogue, for lack of a better term, as she explains to us the new and interesting things that she sees in this new exotic place that she travels to, and relays to us the adventure that goes down. And it's just a very delightful plotline, partly because it's from a very delightful point of view, at least as far as I'm concerned. Elaine has the third highest wart count in this book, behind Perrin and Ranch. She has 14.4%. Much as RJ used the Dragon Reborn to show us who Matt really is after getting two books only seeing him through other people's eyes, this book is his first opportunity to explore the head of this secondary main character, who is the daughter heir of Andor. In the entire series, Elaine has the fifth highest wart count. Her wart count is above even Nynaeve's largely because of the time that RJ devotes to her succession arc. And honestly, sometimes that's a little bit too much. I feel like her succession arc would be more compelling if he had broken up the POVs more, and let us spend more time in Brigida's head and Avienda's head, and maybe some of the kin. And honestly, I feel like he would have done well to give us Lady Dylan point of views. We never hear from her, and the assessment of someone who has known Elaine her whole life and believes she truly is the best candidate for the Lion Throne, would have brought something great to that arc. It would have a better flow to it if it weren't so constantly just Elaine. And I say that as someone who absolutely loves Elaine's character. Because of the way that the slog functions, there's too much concentrated plotline. And from a writing standpoint, he would have done better to hop between POVs, because that would have given more of a sense of plot movement. But that's later. In The Shadow Rising, there is something to her whimsical innocence that makes Elaine a pure joy for me to read. And maybe that's partly because she loses so much of her innocence over the course of their journey, as she discovers the limitations of power and diplomacy, and how sometimes all of the goodwill in the world can't heal what's broken, and how you can't save everyone. So, RJ gives us some setup when we're first in Elaine's head, which is in Chapter 6. The chapter is called Doorways, and it immediately follows a chapter where Egwene and Nynaeve are interrogating Joya and Amiko. 
Elaine and Moraine have come back from Rand's room, where they have been called because Rand was attacked by the bubble of evil. Moraine has healed him, and she's had her frustrating interaction with him, like, you need to choose what you're going to do soon, and please keep me informed. And you're getting the whole thing from Elaine's point of view as Moraine bursts in the door and is like, Rand Althor fucking sucks. So here it says, Elaine gave a small start at realizing Joya was not bound. Hastily, she checked the shield blocking the woman from the true source. She hoped none of the others had noticed her jump. Joya frightened her nearly to death, but Egwene and Nynaeve were no more scared of the woman than Moraine was. Sometimes it was difficult being as brave as the daughter heir of Andor should be. She often found herself wishing she could manage as well as those two. RJ often has our characters compare themselves to each other and then find themselves wanting. You know, Perrin knows how to talk to girls and I don't, or Rand's better at it than I am. The boys tend to compare each other's capacity to deal with women, and the women seem to compare each other's capacity for courage, which I just find very interesting. And both Elaine and Nynaeve feel that they lack in courage, even though it's just that they're dealing with really, really scary shit, and they know it would be smarter to run, and it often requires effort to take a deep breath and go forward. And sometimes the only reason they manage to do it is because everybody else is doing it too. So there are people who are actually quite brave, but they're still struggling because it's fucking scary, and being brave is doing things even though you're scared, which is a theme that he explores a good bit. So from Elaine, you get here that she admires the two rivers folk tremendously, and she's very inspired by them. And we see later that while she thinks that they're more courageous, she also finds them to be tender and more naive. After the Trolloc attack, Egwene goes into Teleron Riyadh. She explores Tanchico and meets Amise, and when she wakes up, they have the whole discussion, and they agree, okay, yeah, Egwene, you should go into the Waste and learn to dreamwalk. There's a knock on the door, and Moraine comes in and says, Joya and Amiko are dead, she announced. Was that the reason for the attack, then? Nynaeve said. All of that to kill them? Or perhaps to kill them if they could not be freed? I've been sure Joya was so confident because she expected rescue. She must have been lying, after all. I never trusted her repentance. Not the main purpose, perhaps, Moraine replied. The captain very wisely kept his men to their posts in the dungeons during the attack. They never saw a single Trolloc or Murdral, but they found the pair dead after, each with her throat rather messily cut. After her tongue had been nailed to her cell door, she might as well have been speaking of having a dress mended. Elaine's stomach heaved leadenly at the detached description. I would not have wanted that for them. Not like that. The light illumined their souls. They sold their souls to the shadow long ago, Egwene said roughly. She had both hands pressed to her stomach, though. How, how was it done? Grey men? I doubt even grey men could have managed that, Moraine said dryly. The shadow has resources beyond what we know, it seems. Yes, Egwene smoothed her dress and her voice. If there was no attempt at rescue, it must mean they were both telling the truth. They were killed because they talked. Or to stop them from it, Nynaeve added grimly. We can hope they do not know that those two told us anything. Perhaps Joya did repent, but I'll not believe it. Elaine swallowed, thinking of being in a cell, having your face pressed to the door so your tongue could be pulled out, and she shivered but made herself say, they might have been killed simply to punish them for being captured. She left out her thought that the killing might have been to make them believe whatever Joya and Amiko had said. They had enough doubts about what to do as it was. Three possibilities, and only one says the Black Aja knows they revealed a word. Since all three are equal, the chances are that they do not know. Egwene and Nynaeve looked shocked. To punish them? Nynaeve said incredulously. They were both tougher than she in many ways. She admired them for it. But they had not grown up watching the maneuverings at court in Camelin, hearing tales of the cruel way Kyrenan and Terrans played the game of houses. I think the Black Aja might be less than gentle with failure of any kind, she told them. I can imagine Leandrin ordering it. Joya surely could have done it easily. Moraine eyed her briefly, a reassessing look. So, first I just want to point out RJ's mention of the Shadow's resources about which they know nothing. I can't recall if he ever tells us in the story that Esam slash Slayer took time out from his Two Rivers fuckery to do Joya and Amiko dirty. We definitely get that info in secondary source material, though, and I appreciate RJ's subtle foreshadowing before we meet this resource in the Two Rivers. Next, we see here 
that Egwene is just super tough. She is utterly lacking sympathy for their fate. She's like, they sold their souls to the shadow long ago, and the idea of them having their tongues nailed to the door and then their throats cut doesn't make me feel the slightest bit bad for them. Which, good for Egwene, you know? She's been through a lot of shit, and she knows the best of all of them that having misplaced pity for people is foolish, because it makes you weak in moments where it might get you fucked up. And it's one of the reasons why she's the one well-suited to go study with the Aiel, because the Aiel aren't here for that shit. They're not going to make the mistake of assuming weakness when there is none. And so Egwene is just kind of like, meh, about the idea of Dark Friend Aes Sedai suffering such a horrible fate. But the notion that this horrible fate would be inflicted for so ruthless a reason is that you were captured, and so now you're going to be murdered in this gruesome way because you were captured, that is beyond her understanding, because being captured is something that often can't be helped, especially the way they were captured, because it was just one of those things. They were captured in the world of dreams by someone who was a powerful, if untrained, dreamer. It's hardly their fault. Basically, it's not fair. She still has a sense of, at least to a certain extent, fairness. And because of the rules that she plays by, even having been fucked over by the White Tower, because she was punished for running away when she got captured by the Shanshen and betrayed by an Aes Sedai, and yeah, she got switched in Shirium study and sentenced to scrubbing pots, even though it was totally unfair, but nobody was going to hammer her tongue to the door and cut her throat. So for her, the idea that you would get punished with such finality for something beyond your control is just stunning. But Elaine, a queen in training and a believer in justice, thinks that even dark friends and murderers deserve trials and clean, humane executions. So she hears how Joya and Amiko die and she immediately feels pity and sorrow. She's like, I would not have had that happen to anyone, no matter how horrible or disgusting a piece of shit that they were. And these are women who, Joya specifically, tortured her and terrorized her and made her fear that she was going to be turned to the shadow. But she has to rise above that because she is to be a queen. She is to be someone who can judge. They were captured, they were prisoners, and they did not deserve that sort of end. Even dark friends deserve something cleaner and more humane after a fair trial. But... She has an understanding that death as a punishment simply for failure is totally logical. She's like, well, yeah, of course that would happen. Why not? You know, that makes sense. She can see and understand that and have her mind immediately jump to that conclusion logically. She's thinking they might have been killed for this reason or this reason, but they totally could have been killed for that reason too. A reason that would never occur to the Two Rivers women. Whereas for Elaine, as ruthless as it is, it doesn't shock her at all. Arja uses the Shadow Rising to continue the development of Nynaeve and Elaine's bromance, or womance. I don't like to use gender terms, but bromance is such a cute word. So, we get to see how well they work together in stressful situations. And we got to enjoy a bit of that in The Great Hunt. RJ wasn't able to invest a lot of time cultivating their relationship in that book, but we did get to see some great scenes of them interacting and working as a team. I explore that some in episode 15, Mostly Do No Harm, which is a naive-centered episode, but I made sure to take some time to look at the bond between the two of them and how it is forged at Falma. This book is a natural continuation of that, where Elaine's a little bit more grown up, and they're just working together better, particularly because the Supergirls function much more smoothly without Egwene and Nynaeve's toxic relationship gumming it up. And, in fact, RJ very cleverly in our first interaction with the girls in Chapter 5, which is called Questioners, highlights Elaine's function in the relationship dynamic between the three of them together by temporarily removing her. She goes with Moraine when the maidens come and are like, Yo, Randall Thor has been chopped up in his room, he needs Aes Sedai healing, and Egwene and Nynaeve stay behind. They're questioning the Black Aja, and they're listening to Amiko tell her story again, and it says... Not a word had changed. Egwene opened her mouth, but Nynaeve spoke first. I've heard enough of this. Let us see if the other has anything new to say. Egwene glared at her, and Nynaeve stared back just as hard, neither blinking. Sometimes she thinks she's still the wisdom, Egwene thought grimly, and I'm still the village girl to teach about herbs. She had better realize things are different now. Elaine usually smoothed things over when it came to this, as it did more often than it should. By the time Egwene thought of smoothing matters herself, she had almost always dug in her heels and flared back, and trying to be soothing then would only be backing down. That was how Nynaeve would see it, she was sure. She could not remember Nynaeve ever making any move to back down, so why should she? This time Elaine was not there. Moraine had summoned the daughter heir with a word and a gesture to follow the maiden who had come for the Aes Sedai. 
Without her, the tension stretched, each of the accepted, waiting for the other to blink first. So, RJ just takes a couple of paragraphs here to let us know that things have not improved over the past 20 days. Everything is just as strained as it was in the lead-up to the stone falling when the tension between Egwene and Niney was fucking terrible and Egwene was admittedly being an asshole, and Elaine slapping the shit out of Egwene was a temporary reset at best. Basically, RJ wants to make sure that when a few chapters later, Egwene says, you know what, I'm going to go to the Waste and learn about dreamwalking instead of going to Tanchika with you guys. We, all of us as readers, think to ourselves, that's a great idea, Egwene. Elaine just does not butt heads with Nynaeve, and partly that's because Nynaeve's instinct is not to infantilize Elaine. Nynaeve met Elaine when she was more or less an adult, in a situation where Nynaeve was not an authority figure, and so she does not have a predisposition to be overbearing. And Elaine has courtly manners and ingrained dignity that make her seem older. We hear in both Rand's point of view when he first meets her and Egwene's point of view when she first meets her, so the first two POVs we get that show us Elaine, this mention that she is dignified and seems older than she is. Elaine doesn't mind Nynaeve's temper, partly because she has never experienced it in a context where Nynaeve has had power over her or the capacity to bully her. And also, I think, because of Nynaeve's block and the fact that Nynaeve has to be angry to be able to channel, she associates Nynaeve's temper with awesomeness. When Nynaeve is angry, awesome shit is going to happen. The day is going to be saved. And so it just doesn't bother her as much. Elaine is also content to let Nynaeve be in charge. There is no sense of conceding something by following her lead. Queens are trained to heed advisors who have wisdom and experience. They're trained to trust their generals and to listen to experts. And so, because she was raised to be a queen, and raised to listen to people who know what the fuck they're talking about, and watched her mother, a strong and intelligent and independent queen, listen to Gareth Brynn when he had smart shit to say and knew what he was talking about, Listen to Elida when she had smart shit to say and knew what she was talking about. You know, listen to other people when they have smart shit to say and maybe know more than you do. Elaine is trained to do that and instinctively does do it because it doesn't lessen her position and she's just much better at giving as well as getting in that kind of a situation. Nynaeve has things that are worth hearing and Nynaeve has talents that are worth deferring to. Nynaeve is capable of leading, and Elaine does not mind deferring to her expertise and her life experience. And on the other side, Nynaeve acknowledges that Elaine has useful knowledge about the world and often knows more about cultural situations and history and economics, etc. Elaine brings book knowledge, and Nynaeve has practical experience and common sense, and they both just work together really well. So... Elaine and Niney decide to take the Seafolk Raker to Tanchico. Moraine suggests it to them, never bothering to add that the Seafolk almost never carry Aes Sedai. She's just sort of like, oh, yeah, they're the fastest ship, so you might want to try to take that one if you want to get to Tanchico fast. So they take a carriage to the docks, and Elaine's getting out of the carriage and looking around, observing her surroundings on the docks, and it says... Despite the early hour, men wearing leather vests on shirtless shoulders scurried about, toting large bundles on bent backs or pushing handcarts piled with barrels or crates. None spared her more than a passing sullen glance, dark eyes falling quickly, forelock touched grudgingly. Most did not raise their heads at all. She was sad to see it. These Terra nobles had handled their people badly. Mishandled them was more like it. In Andor, she could have expected cheerful smiles and a respectful word of greeting, freely given by straight-backed men who knew their worth as well as hers. It was almost enough to make her regret leaving. She had been raised to lead and one day govern a proud people, and she felt the urge to teach these folk dignity. But that was Rand's job, not hers. And if he doesn't do it properly, I will give him a piece of my mind, a bigger piece. At least he had begun by following her advice, and she had to admit he knew how to treat his people. It would be interesting to see what he had done by the time she returned, if there's a point to coming back. So here Elaine is witnessing the effects of shitty government. It's way worse in tier than what she is used to in Andor. You know, the people in Andor's commoners have the right to expect a certain level of behavior from their lords, and the people of Tyr are just being hosed. It's a shitty place to be a common person. And so, because it's so much worse than she is used to, and it shouldn't be that way, rulers have a responsibility to their subjects, it distresses her to see it. 
but it's also a place where there is power to make it better. And because Rand is benevolent and wants to make it better and sought out advice on how to make it better, she knows that Tyr can become more like Andor. Someday it can be a place where the gap between commoner and noble is far narrower. If Rand does his job right, then one day perhaps the people of Tyr can also be a proud people who will be able to look their nobles in the eye and nod and have an expectation that the compact between commoner and noble will be upheld, rather than having it be like, oh, you exist to shit on me and I can't count on you for anything, and I know you're going to fuck me over. And she is looking at all of that and feeling hopeful about it, even as she feels sad that these people were let down so badly by their government. Elaine has very strong ideas of how people deserve to be treated. Not just because it's right to be kind, but because it's sensible from a diplomatic perspective. So it says here a little bit further, The Seafolk Raker was easily a hundred paces long, half again as large as the next vessel in sight, with three great towering masts amidships and one shorter on the raised deck at the stern. She had been on ships before, but never one so big and never on one going to sea. Just the name of the ship's owners spoke of distant lands and strange ports, the Athan Mier, the Sea Folk. Stories meant to be exotic always contained the Sea Folk unless they were about the Aiel. Nynaeve climbed out of the carriage behind her, tying a green traveling cloak at her neck and grumbling to herself and to the driver, tumbled about like a hen in a windstorm, thumped like a dusty rug. How did you manage to find every last rotten hole between here and the stone, Goodman? That took true skill. A pity none of it goes into handling horses. He tried to hand her down, his narrow face sullen, but she refused his aid. Sighing, Elaine doubled the number of silver pennies she was taking from her purse. Thank you for bringing us safely and swiftly. She smiled as she pressed the coins into his hand. We told you to go fast and you did as we asked. The streets are not your fault and you did an excellent job under poor conditions. Without looking at the coins, the fellow gave her a deep bow, a grateful look, and a murmured, Thank you, my lady. As much for the words as the money, she was sure. She had found that a kind word and a little praise were usually received as well as silver was, if not better, though the silver itself was seldom unappreciated, to be sure. The light send you a safe journey, my lady, he added. The merest flicker of his eyes toward Nynaeve said that wish was for Elaine alone. Nynaeve had to learn how to make allowances and give consideration. Truly, she did. So, Nynaeve right now is wearing a silk dress. She looks like a noble. And as far as the driver is concerned, this is a carriageman, this is a commoner, a servant, a service worker. As far as the driver is concerned, nobles being shitty to him is all in a day's work. Elaine is going out of her way to make up to the service worker when her friend acts like a Karen by giving him a fatty tip and being extra nice to him. And I think that a lot of people nowadays don't stay friends with people who are shitty to service workers. Or if you go on a date and you see that person is shitty to a service worker, that's a clue that you don't want to be in a relationship with them. Because however nice they are to you, if they're shitty to the service workers, that says something fundamental about them. And it's like Nynaeve is as good as gold in a lot of ways. And her being shitty to the service worker... She's shitty to everybody, so it's not like it's really a departure from her standard M.O. And honestly, she doesn't have a concept of a service worker because she's from the fucking Two Rivers. She doesn't have a concept of somebody who trades in goods or services and is not in a position to fight back. And Elaine's thinking to herself, Jesus Christ, Nynaeve, do you not even fucking get it here? You can't be shitty to people like that and not be ten times the asshole that you would be if you were just saying something shitty to someone in the Two Rivers where they would be in a position to look back at you and be like, how about shut up, fucker, you know, or you can drive yourself to the fucking dock. So, if you want to know the fundamental nature of Elaine, especially if you're someone who doesn't care for Elaine so much, Elaine is the person who goes out of her way to overcompensate the service worker when she's in the company of someone who's an asshole, because she's diplomatic and kind-hearted, and she just knows that you don't treat people that way. And when people get treated that way, you try to unfuck it, because it's just so not cool. And Elaine is one of the few people Nynaeve feels safe giving ground to. Elaine is not an Emmons fielder, and so Nynaeve doesn't have to be the wisdom. There's no pressure on her, because the wisdom is supposed to be infallible. People go to the wisdom for assurance, because she knows what to do. And so you kind of have to be right as the wisdom, which is one of Nynaeve's great struggles, because if you're not right, or you admit that you're not right, then how is someone supposed to have any faith in you? But Elaine has never known her in that capacity, and so there's less pressure 
and she can own things to Elaine that she would never own to anybody else. And so she acknowledges to Elaine that she was an asshole to the carriageman, and then says, You will not expect me to go running after him to apologize, I hope. That handful of silver you gave him should soothe any wound short of mortal. You really must learn to be more careful with money, Elaine. We do not have the realm of Andor's resources for our own use. A family could live comfortably for a month on what you hand out to everyone who does the work they've been paid to do for you. Elaine gave her a quietly indignant look. Nynaeve always seemed to think they should live worse than servants unless there was a reason not to, instead of the other way around has made sense. But the older woman did not appear to notice the expression that always put royal guardsmen on their toes. Instead, Nynaeve hoisted her bundles and sturdy cloth bags and turned down the dock. At least this ship will be a smoother ride than that. I do hope smooth. Shall we go aboard? As they picked their way down the pier between working men and stacked barrels and carts full of goods, Elaine said, Nynaeve, the sea folk can be touchy until they know you, or so I was taught. Do you think you might try to be a little... a little what? Tactful, Nynaeve. Elaine skipped a step as someone spat on the dock in front of her. There was no telling which fellow had done it. When she looked around, they all had their heads down and were hard at work. Mishandling by the High Lords or no, she would have said a few quietly sharp words that the culprit would not soon have forgotten if she could have found him. You might try to be a little tactful for once. Of course, Nynaeve started up the raker's rope rail gangway, as long as they do not bounce me about. So, Nynaeve's like, why should I tip service workers? They already get paid. Yeah, probably the Terran equivalent of two fifty an hour, Nynaeve. Jesus. Secondly, Nynaeve thinks that they should live worse than servants unless there's a reason not to. I'm sort of on Nynaeve's side when it comes to that. I have money in the bank because my wife and I live like we're poor as fuck, and I'm here for it. And I don't mind driving a beat-up salvage car and living in a shithole apartment if it means that I've got money in the bank. It gives me a sense of comfort, ironically, and security. So I'm on Team Nynaeve when it comes to let's live like we're poor as fuck. And also, here, RJ lets Elaine tactfully, passively call Nynaeve out for being a dick to the Uber driver, which allows for an opening for Elaine to tactfully tell Nynaeve you have about as much tact as a brick to the face, which is just brilliant. It's brilliant and subtle. This whole handful of paragraphs here shows the type of friendship they have, that they can be friendly or playful with each other, and also that they can call each other out or own things to each other, and I love it. They get on the ship, and they approach the Sailmistress and Windfinder. Because Nynaeve is the oldest, it's diplomatically the better choice for her to do the talking. And I'm sure that is one thing that frustrates Elaine. She understands that it makes sense for status reasons, that Nynaeve, of course, must do the talking, and that doesn't upset her as far as like, well, I'm the daughter heir. She doesn't think about it like that. She just thinks, I have tact, and am trained in diplomacy, and am generally not ruled by my emotions, except when I get butthurt that my boyfriend is relieved I'm leaving and I send him a second contradictory letter. So she wishes she could speak purely from the sense of, she has the skills to make things go the smoothest. So it says, Remember what Moraine told you, she cautioned as they approached the stern deck. That had not been much. Even Aes Sedai knew little about the Athan Mir. Moraine had imparted the proper phrasings, though, the things that had to be said for good manners. And remember tact, she added in a firm whisper. I will remember, Nynaeve replied sharply. I can be tactful. Elaine truly hoped she would. The two seafolk women waited for them at the top of the stairs. Ladder, Elaine remembered, even when they were stairs. She did not understand why ships had to have different names for common things. A floor was a floor, in a barn or an inn or a palace. Why not on a ship? So... I find this really funny because RJ was an army man who worked as a nuclear engineer for the Navy after he went to college. And I'm wondering if he had the same experience that I had because I worked in a civilian capacity for a sea service for a number of years. And if at the facilities that he worked at, which I'm assuming was onshore facilities, he worked with people who referred to the walls as bulkheads and the floor as the deck, even though he was in a building. And if he threw this observation in here to, through a character's eyes, kind of be like, what the fuck? Even though here they're actually on a ship and not in a building. But I'm going to pay attention once I get to Seafolk POVs because I don't remember if when they observe their surroundings on the shore, they think about things as ladders or bulkheads or decks that are actually stairs, walls, and floors. But it would be so very RJ of him to have them do that. So in the stern cabin, they go in to talk to the sailmistress and the windfinder, and there is a shanchan helmet on a little dummy head. 
R.J. first mentions the Sea Folk in Chapter 1, when we're in the head of High Lady Surath as she is looking out onto Canterin Harbor. She's describing in her internal narrative the vessels of the Athan Mier, the rakers with all their cut rigging and everything, and now he's using the Sea Folk to remind us of the Shanchen. And so Elaine asks the sail mistress, whose name is Quan, how they got the helmet. And it says, Wave Dancer encountered a Shanchen ship last year, Quan replied. They wished to take him, but I did not wish to give him up. She shrugged slightly. I have the helmet to remind me, and the sea took the shanchen. The light be merciful to all who sail. I will not go close to a vessel with ribbed sails again. You were lucky, Nynaeve said curtly. The shanchen hold captive women who can channel and make them channel as a weapon. If they had had one on that ship, you would be regretting ever having seen it. Elaine grimaced at her, though it was too late. She could not tell whether the sea folk women were offended by Nynaeve's tone. The pair kept the same neutral expressions, but Elaine was beginning to realize they did not show very much on their faces, not to strangers anyway. So RJ plays out the scene between Elaine and Nynaeve and the sail mistress and the windfinder, and he continues to humorously show us Nynaeve's lack of tact throughout this, what's supposed to be a very formal and diplomatic interaction between dignitaries. Aes Sedai of even the lowest rank are by their very nature dignitaries, and the sailmistress and the windfinder of a ship are also dignitaries. And you never hear what clan Quan and Joran are, but I'm assuming that they aren't part of the first twelve clans because they're not assholes. All of the sea folk that we meet going forward are bigwigs, and they're all assholes. So I can only conclude that because Quan and Joran aren't, they must not be important in the sea folk scheme of things. Though I was discussing this on the Wheel of Time spoilers podcast when we were covering the chapter in Crown of Swords where Elaine, Avienda, and Nynaeve go to the Seafolk ship and make the terrible bargain with the mistress of the ships to get their help with the Bowl of the Winds. And someone in the Discord chat made the point that people behave differently with their business partners compared to their customers. Here, Elaine and Nynaeve are basically customers, and so the sea folk would of course deal with them differently than they would with someone who they make a bargain with, and maybe that's why Quan and Joran are really nice and pleasant, and all of the sea folk that we deal with in future are assholes. I just know that I was always very charmed with this first interaction with the sea folk, and reading over and over again, and we don't really meet any and have interactions and conversations with them until book seven. So all of those later interactions, I was always just kind of like, why? Why do they have to be assholes? So anyway, RJ keeps showing us Nynaeve's lack of tact through Elaine's cringing internal narrative. And we get this whole preview of how the sea folk women go tits out at sea. The deck lady comes in with tea and her tits out. And so she gets sent into the bilges because she broke the rules. We learn that Aes Sedai seldom receive the gift of passage. And then we hear about the Coromer. And this isn't the first time that we've heard mention of the sea folk chosen one. But this is the first time that we know it's Rand. And that he is actually part of, for lack of a better term, a holy trinity. He is the Coromer, the Dragon Reborn, and he who comes with the Dawn, all three together. So a little bit further on, Quan says, The prophecy is being fulfilled. He is the Coromer. I said I serve him. You are proof of that, that you are here in this city. That is in the prophecy as well. The White Tower shall be broken by his name, and I said I shall kneel to wash his feet and dry them with their hair. You will have a long wait if you expect to see me wash any man's feet, Nynaeve said wryly. What does this have to do with our passage? Will you take us or not? Elaine cringed, but the sail mistress came back just as directly. Why do you wish to journey to Tanjiko? It is an unpleasant port of call now. I docked there last winter. Shore folk nearly swarmed my vessels seeking passage out to anywhere. They did not care so long as it was away from Tanjiko. I cannot believe conditions are any better now. Do you always question your passengers so? Nynaeve said. I've offered you enough to buy a village. Two villages. If you want more, name your price. Not a price, Elaine hissed in her ear. A gift. If Quan was offended or even had heard, she gave no sign. Why? Nynaeve took a tight grip on her braid, but Elaine laid a hand on her arm. They had planned to keep a few secrets themselves, but surely they had learned enough since sitting down to alter any plan. There was a time for secrecy and a time for truth. We hunt the Black Aja, sail mistress. We believe some of them are in Tanchico. She met Nynaeve's angry stare calmly. We must find them, else they may harm the Dragon Reborn, the Coromer. And then the Windfinder determines, yes, we can take them. And it's, of course, her choice because she's the one who can channel, and the Windfinders are the reason that they never bring Aes Sedai. 
and neither Elaine nor Nynaeve has enough experience channeling to perceive when they're near another woman who can channel, but this is the book where both Elaine and Egwene start to recognize that affinity with female channelers. But we've heard numerous times that Tanchico is kind of shitty, and it's funny because it has such a nice name. It seems like it should be a really pleasant port of call. You know, I just have this vision of lounging out on Tanchico Beach or something. It sounds exotic and pretty, and it just doesn't give the impression that it's an unpleasant place to go. Anyway, they have to break the news to the cargo master that his trading is all fucked up because he traded to go to Shara, and they're like, no, we're going to go to Tanchico. And he's like, wait, but the shit I traded for isn't going to be worth anything there. And he's really upset about it and wants to know why. And Quan is like, because reasons. Sucks to suck. And so he's pissed, and he salutes and leaves, and it says, He saluted me like a deck boy, sister. We regret being a cause of trouble, sale mistress, Elaine said carefully, and we regret having witnessed this. If we have caused any embarrassment to anyone, please accept our apologies. Embarrassment? Quan sounded startled. I said I, I am sale mistress. I doubt your presence embarrassed Torum, and I would not apologize to him for that if it did. Trade is his, but I am sale mistress. I must make up to him, and it will not be easy, since I must keep the reason secret still, because he is right, and I could not think quickly enough to give him a reason beyond what I would give a raw hand. That scar on his face he earned clearing the Shanshen from Wave Dancer's decks. He has older scars earned defending my ship, and I have only to put up my hand to have gold placed in it because of his trading. It is the things I cannot tell him I must make up to him, because he deserves to know. I do not understand, Nynaeve said. We would ask you to keep the Black Aja secret. She shot a hard look at Elaine, one that promised hard words once they were alone. Elaine intended a few words of her own about the meaning of tact. But surely three thousand crowns is reason enough to take us to Tanchico. I must keep you secret, Aes Sedai. What you are and why you travel. Many among my crew consider Aes Sedai bad luck. If they knew they not only carried Aes Sedai, but toward a port where other Aes Sedai may serve the Father of Storms, the grace of the light shone on us that none was close enough to hear me call you so above. Will it offend if I ask you to keep below as much as possible and not to wear your rings when on deck? For answer, Nynaeve plucked her great serpent ring off and dropped it into her pouch. Elaine did the same, a bit more reluctantly. She rather enjoyed having people see her ring. Not quite trusting in Nynaeve's remaining store of diplomacy at this point, she spoke up before the other woman could. Sail, mistress. We have offered you a gift of passage, if it pleases you. If it does not, may I ask what would? Shortly after this, RJ does his time sink, where Rand puts the sword in the stone. Perrin, in the previous chapter, has to fight the pull of Taviran, and gets on his horse and gallops away. And here, the ship pitches, and they all go up to the deck to see what's going on and whether it's broken. And lo and behold, Tom, Marilyn, and Julian Sandar are on board. And Quan is reluctant to deny them the gift of passage, because it's not something you do. And she's especially reluctant because she knows Julin. He's done them a good turn before, and she thinks he's a good dude, and so denying him the gift of passage would be a shitty thing to do. And as far as Tom goes, a gleeman is a gleeman. But she will if Elaine and Nynaeve really want her to, and so it says... Let us see why they are here first, Nynaeve said in a flat voice that did not bode well for either man. Perhaps I should do the talking, Elaine suggested, gently but firmly. That way you can watch to see if they are hiding anything. She did not say that that way Nynaeve's temper would not get the better of her, but the wry smile the other woman gave her said she had heard it anyway. Very well, Elaine. I will watch them. Perhaps you might study how I keep calm. You know how you are when you become overwrought. Elaine had to laugh. And this is just a really great interaction. There's a soft acknowledgement on Nynaeve's part that, yeah, she got a little bit overwrought in the cabin, and yeah, Elaine has strengths that she lacks. They're kind of playful between each other, and I just think it's beautiful. So, Rand and Lon had a conversation that we never hear the details of, but the result involves Lon going to Julian's house and telling him, pack your shit and go and try and keep these women safe. And Moraine, of course, manipulates Tom into going with Elaine by being like, you know you don't want anything bad to happen to this naive girl that you must have some sense of fatherly responsibility for, and also I'll give you names that you can great game into oblivion as vengeance for what was done to your nephew. Nynaeve and Elaine agree that Tom and Julian can come, but Nynaeve insists that they swear to obey. 
Julin does so without complaint, but Tom fucking kicks and screams about it until she's like, you will literally get pitched off this ship if you don't. And afterwards it says, Very well then, Niney said in a bracing voice. It is settled. You two find the sail, mistress, now, and tell her I said to find the pair of you a cubbyhole somewhere if she can, out of our way. Off with you now, quickly. Sandar bowed again and left. Tom quivered visibly before joining him, stiff-backed. Are you not being too hard on them? Elaine said as soon as they were out of earshot. That was not far, with all the hurly-burly on deck. We do have to travel together, after all. Smooth words make smooth companions. Best to begin as we mean to go on. Elaine, Tom Marilyn knows very well we are not full Aes Sedai. She lowered her voice and glanced around as she said it. None of the crew was even looking at them except for the sail mistress back near the stern deck where she was listening to the tall glee man and the thief catcher. Men talk. They always do, so Sandar will know it soon enough as well. They'd present no trouble to Aes Sedai, but two accepted? Given half a chance, they would both be doing things they thought for the best no matter what we said. I do not mean to give them even that half chance. Perhaps you were right. Do you think they know why we are going to Tanchico? Nynaeve sniffed. No, or they'd not be so sanguine, I think, and I would rather not tell them until we must. She gave Elaine a meaningful look. There was no need for her to say she would not have told the sail mistress either had it been left to her. Here is a saying for you. Borrow trouble and you repay tenfold. You speak as if you don't trust them, Nynaeve. She would have said the other woman was behaving like Moraine, but Nynaeve would not appreciate the comparison. So this is a really great bit. You know, Elaine points out, yo, you're being a Karen. And when Nynaeve articulates her reasoning, she sees it. She's like, yeah, you're right. You are right. They absolutely will try to undermine us once they feel justified because we don't have as much authority as we've been portraying ourselves to have. And Nynaeve happily explains herself to Elaine. She doesn't feel resentful or defensive about it the way she would with Egwene. And Elaine would never actually compare Nynaeve to Moraine, even though denying the men information and demanding unquestioning compliance is a very Moraine thing to do, because Elaine cares about people's feelings and wants to get along. And the major rule of that is, let's not act like dicks to each other. And while there are other friends that wouldn't mind the comparison, either because they have a sense of humor, like, she could say that to Min, you're behaving like Moraine, and Min wouldn't mind that, she'd just probably be like, hey, go fuck yourself. Or even Egwene would take that pretty well, you know, probably not with humor, but with a sense of self-reflection. But she knows Nynaeve would not appreciate being compared to someone she can't fucking stand, and wouldn't be able to take it as a joke, or with a sense of self-reflection, and so she doesn't say it. So the ship gets underway, and it says, Muttering about seeing what their cabin was like, Nynaeve went downstairs, below, but Elaine was enjoying the breeze across the deck and the feel of starting out. To travel, to see places she had not seen before, was a joy in itself. She had never expected to, not like this. The daughter of Andor might make a few state visits, and she would make more once she succeeded to the throne, but they would be bounded about with ceremony and propriety, not like this at all barefoot sea folk in a ship headed to sea. So this gives us some of the whimsical flavor of Elaine's point of view in this travelogue that she's giving us. Like, that's the best term I could come up with. She's doing things she never thought possible and experiencing freedom and having adventures. This is someone who grew up with every single playdate structured. So making her own choices and her own mistakes is still incredibly novel. She's had her choices regimented and her risks kept to a minimum as much as possible growing up, because as a princess, as the daughter heir, her life is so incredibly sheltered, and they can't afford for her to make any bad mistakes, because she's the heir to the throne, and the number of choices that she actually has available to her are quite limited, and the number of people that she can have meaningful interactions with is fairly small, and anything more than that has to have ceremony and propriety and layers of people between. And so her actual experience of the world is always going to be seen through a filter of what it is to be the daughter heir. So she loves this opportunity to kind of slip through and be a more ordinary person and do the sorts of tasks ordinary people do. She even tells Tom when he calls her my lady, I'm just Mistress Turkand here. I'm not interested in what's owed me thanks to my rank and my privilege. I want to know what it's like to be without that and the attention and expectations it brings. And it's wonderful. It gives us this beautiful sense of novelty. 
and we get more of this innocent joy her very first night in Tanchico. They get rooms in the Three Plum Court, and they have dinner in the Chamber of Falling Blossoms. Nynaeve goes to their room, and because, again, we're in Elaine's head and we're seeing everything through Elaine's eyes, it says, she herself followed Tom down to the common room where he had promised Rendra he would perform. For a wonder, she found a bench at an empty table, and cool looks sufficed to ward off the men who suddenly seemed to want to sit there. Rendra brought her a silver cup of wine, and she sipped as she listened to Tom play his harp, singing love songs like the first rose of summer and the wind that shakes the willow, and funny songs like Only One Boot and the Old Grey Goose. His listeners were appreciative, slapping the tables for applause. After a while, Elaine slapped hers, too. She had not drunk more than half her wine, but a handsome young serving man smiled at her and filled it up. It was all strangely exciting. In her whole life, she had not been in an inn's common room half a dozen times and never to sip wine and be entertained like one of the common people. And then she proceeds to get white girl wasted and remember Tom. And when it comes to her relationship with Tom, I really cringe about how RJ wrote it. It's a relationship that has a lot of potential, but he didn't do it very well. This week's accompanying minisode on Patreon is a discussion of my thoughts and feelings about it, and how it could have been done better so it was less cringe and borderline creepy. However, whether or not he did it particularly well, it does give a believable foundation for Tom to be one of her great tutors, and one of the reasons that she is able to, in less than a year, transition from being this really kind of innocent and wide-eyed girl to someone who can successfully gain the throne of a weakened and divided Andor. I just wish RJ had written it in a way that didn't make me wince so often. So the only other thing of great note during the journey on the Seafolk ship is Elaine teaching and learning the One Power with the Windfinder. RJ has her massively develop her strength over the course of this 10-day journey and she even comments to herself later on during their climactic battle scene at the end in the Panarch's palace. She realizes that her abilities with the One Power have increased. So, RJ basically gives her the chance over this journey to catch up to Egwene. Egwene had many weeks of forcing with the Shanchen, and during that whole period of time, Elaine couldn't channel it all. She and Egwene were in lockstep with their abilities up until the point that Egwene gets captured, because to lie low in Falma for all of those weeks, Elaine and Nynaeve couldn't channel at all. There are a couple of exceptions. Elaine channels to steal apples, and Nynaeve is super upset about it, and there's discussion of Nynaeve having channeled to try to unlock one of the Demani collars, and them having to hide for two days after. The point being that even though Varen gave a ton of lessons over the course of the winter as they journeyed back to Tarvalin, Egwene has been much farther along with her channeling. So Arja uses this time of Elaine aiding the Windfinder and powering the boat to Tanchico to get them there as fast as possible for her to increase her strength and her flexibility and to get her caught up to Egwene. RJ sets us up nicely in these Elaine POVs in the beginning part of The Shadow Rising, introducing us to a new culture, giving us a good idea of who Elaine really is, and allowing us to enjoy a Supergirl dynamic that's just her and Nynaeve, and therefore refreshingly non-toxic. This ten days on the Seafolk Raker is the fun part of their journey, most of which we don't see, before they arrive at their destination and realize that every awful thing they've heard about this lovely-sounding exotic port is accurate and then some. And while they're cruising along, 20 chapters go by before we're in Elaine's head again, chapters where our other heroes make progress in their arcs. Perrin gets to the two rivers and learns about the death of his family and rescues the Luhans and the Cawthons and starts to hunt Trollocs. Rand goes to Roydian and begins to travel to Cold Rock's Hold and runs into some forsaken riddled peddlers. And once we arrive in Tanchico, the first impressions that we get of it aren't even Elaine's. But that's a discussion for the next episode. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Podcast of the Dragon. Sorry it took so long to get this out. I got the Jordan Con COVIDs and didn't feel like doing any podcasting for a while. And then the rough draft of this episode ended up being massive. 
unfortunately, there was a perfect place to break it up, and I love it when that happens. As discussed, this episode's accompanying minisode on Patreon is about Tom and Elaine's uncomfortable relationship. I haven't recorded it yet and won't give you a date for it except to say it will drop before episode 35. Sorry about that, but I figured better to get this out than spend more time making other content first. If you'd like to support the show and have access to that or other fun content, there is a link in the show notes. There are other links to Discord and email, to the Watt Trivia and Games Discord, and to the Watt Fandom and Calendar Discord. A link to my YouTube, you should go and subscribe, as well as to my Twitter handle, at Pod of the Dragon. There is also a link to Apple Podcasts. If you could review my show, I'd really appreciate it. It will help other people find me, and so will word of mouth. So if you know anyone who likes The Wheel of Time and might be interested in a different kind of podcast, please tell them about me. My music is by Kevin McLeod. My name is Morgan. And it just occurred to me that Julian's effortless agreement to obey Nynaeve might speak to deeper proclivities. Maybe someone wants a spanking?